0: John chapter 18, if you brought a Bible, that's where we're going to be. You can flip there, uh, the 18th chapter of John. So last week, let me just really quickly bring you up to speed. I feel like I'm going to have to do this because the narrative for these last, you know, four chapters just moves so quickly. So let me just remind you, last week we saw the arrest of Jesus um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas, and this group of probably close to 600 700 people come and it's this mob and they arrest Jesus and and we really looked at that passage from two different vantage points first we saw it from uh, just a, a mere human vantage point which where it just looked like chaos and it was it was pure evil and it was tense and And you could just kind of see how people were reacting, whether it was Judas or the soldiers or Peter even, right? Pulls his sword out and he cuts someone's ear off. It just seemed like kind of chaotic and out of control. But when you look at it from Jesus' vantage point, um, he was very much in control of the entire thing. Um, We were told in a few spots, like, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. Jesus says, right, they ask, who are you you looking for? And, And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall over, like 600 Roman soldiers just knocked to the ground. And so it's not as if, right, oh, man, this mob is so clever and they got him. No, Jesus willingly gave himself over to be arrested. And so we talked about, you know, is God sovereign and in control over even the bad things in life. Now, this week, John um, writes in such an amazing way where he is going to go back and forth between Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. I thought of calling this sermon trial and denial because it rhymes. Uh, But uh, I don't know if you've ever seen um, movies or TV shows where it kind of cuts from one intense scene to another intense scene, and it's just kind of like Building the, the tension. Well, this is kind of how John writes. We're gonna we're gonna see a, a portion of Peter denying, and then it's like it switches scenes to now we're in the trial of Jesus, and then it and then it goes back and forth, and it's just written in such a an amazing way. Um, but what we're gonna see here is a a complete faceplant from Peter. Um, I don't know if any of you are, are Olympic Games enthusiasts, um, but our, our family is, and um, you may remember this if you watch the Olympic Games, but in the 2006 Torino Winter Games, um, Lindsay Jack- Jacobellis was a female uh, snowboarder, 20 years old, and it was kind of said that, okay, she is clearly going to be the winner of the gold medal. Did anyone watch that gold medal run? Knows what I'm talking about? Okay, good. So it's suspenseful. Uh, but it, like uh, everyone was saying, Lindsay is clearly going to win. There's no one who can even like come close to her. And in the race, she, uh, the women's snowboard cross, which is kind of like a downhill race with jumps. And then you, you cross the finish line. She was far in the lead. And they went, "Yep, yeah, see, look, she's clearly going to win the gold medal. And on the last jump that they do before they come to the finish line, Lindsay decided to kind of add some flair Right, And so she did, I don't know what it's called, some weird grab thing on her snowboard and she lost her balance and she actually wiped out like feet from the finish line and the second place snowboarder who was right behind her, Tanya Frieden from Switzerland, actually won the gold. And then Lindsay kind of got up and she kind of sailed in to win silver and it was amazing hearing the commentary. They went, oh, what were you thinking? And it was a classic example of overconfidence leading to someone's downfall. Like Lindsay was, I got this in the bag. Let me give a good show at the end and do this cool grab and then I'll win the gold. And she totally wiped out and, and, and coaches and others were saying, yeah, she just got way too overconfident and it got in her head and then she completely biffed it. So in our, in our text today, it's basically a, a case study of Peter. And what we're going to see is Peter completely biffed, his downfall, his face plant, so to speak. And and I want to ask for you and I, how do you and I make sure that we don't fall into spiritual overconfidence? Where we don't go like, I got this, I'm doing great. And then something like what happened to Peter happens to us. So that's what we kind of want to examine Today, it's like a case study in this great face plant that Peter does. So if you have a Bible, John 18, I want to read our text, so starting in verse 15. So let me just remind you, literally, they've just arrested Jesus. They're leading him to Annas first, and then it says this in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The reading of God's word. So I hope you see how John... Um, writes is just brilliant and it's kind of this back and forth and you can uh, like if you didn't know the story and and you ended at verse 18 and you would go okay now Peter's standing by the fire and then the scene shifts you go wait wait what happened to Peter right and so how how John writes is just just brilliant so let's let's work our way through the first part of the text we're told that Peter follows Jesus and then there's another disciple and most likely this is John himself as we've studied this gospel, John never refers to himself uh, by his name. He's just kind of the other disciple, and another disciple, and the disciple who Jesus loved. Which I love that he just kind of sneaks it in. By the way, Jesus loved me. Um, but it, uh, most likely, this was John. We're not 100% sure, but most likely, just the way it's written. And apparently, J- John somehow knew the high priest. He hadn't. He had an inn there, and so he goes right into the courtyard to kind of take. Uh, witness of everything that was happening. And Peter just kind of waits outside. And so John goes back and he gets Peter in, brings Peter in. He talks to the servant girl who's watching the door. And in verse 17, here we get this first denial, right? The servant girl asks, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And the way it's worded is she's expecting a negative response. She's expecting him to go, no, 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 I'm not one of his disciples. And that's essentially what Peter does, right? He answers, I am not. Now, I want you to compare this to John 13, 37, where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times, right? So, Just a little while earlier, Peter had said, like, why can't I come with you, Jesus? I will die for you. Um, Even compare it to last week's text, the thing that took place a little while ago, right? Peter pulls out his dagger, and he cuts the the servant's ear off. And now, a little servant girl asks if he's a disciple, and he denies it. So keep in mind, this is not a Roman soldier. This is not a high priest. This is not someone in a high position of power. This is a servant girl who was just watching the door. (laughs) You're not a disciple, are you? And he goes, I am not. Now, here's the other interesting thing that John is doing he's contrasting Jesus and Peter. Because if you remember, the mob comes to look for Jesus and Jesus comes out to the mob, not afraid at all because he's in control, and they ask, or, or he asks, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and Jesus answers, I am, right? Ego, I may. When the servant girl asks Peter, what does he answer? I am not. And, and that word is, uk, I may, and it's actually a play on words. It's like, do you remember what Jesus just said? He has no fear of the mob, and he just says, yeah, I am, and now, Peter, are you a disciple? I am not. So when Jesus is present, Peter is actually filled with boldness, right? When Jesus says, I will die for you, Jesus, and I'm gonna pull out my dagger and defend you, Jesus, but when Peter is alone and Jesus isn't there and he's challenged, he loses all courage. And then verse 18 is actually quite heartbreaking. We have servants and officers warming themselves by a fire. Most likely the same servants and officers who just arrested Jesus. And what does the wording say? It says Peter goes and he stands with them. It's like Peter now, the picture is that he's actually positioned himself with the enemies of Jesus, He's just denied him. He's just betrayed Jesus. Saying, I don't even know the guy. And the picture is, and he goes and he stands by the fire with the same people that just arrested Jesus and he's warming himself with them. It's, it's very similar to, to verse five when John makes a point to say, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Isn't that interesting? In the arrest of Jesus, John goes out of his way to say, Judas was standing with the enemies of Jesus, and now Peter is too. And then the scene shifts, right? And we're like, "No, wait. What happens to Peter? And the scene shifts, and now we're inside the courtyard, and we get this first trial, this questioning of Jesus, and we're told that Annas, the high priest, and I explained uh, last week why Annas and Caiaphas are both called the high priest. And it would be very similar to, you know how when a president has done his term, they still call him the president, right? Like Obama's not the president anymore, and anytime he's introduced, President Obama. And so they would keep calling Annas the high priest, and many people viewed him as, yeah, he's the legitimate high priest. But Caiaphas, on paper, he was the high priest. So Annas is asking questions specifically about Jesus' teaching and his disciples, now, I want you to keep in mind as we, as we go through this trial of Jesus, in John eleven fifty three, 53, speaking of the high priests and the religious leaders, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So this is not a trial where they're like, we really got to figure out if this guy is innocent or guilty. <laughs> this is a, a mockery. They already know that we're going to kill Jesus. Now we just kind of have to find a way to make it look legit. So they're not asking questions because they're, they're actually curious about his teaching or his disciples, or they're not actually trying to figure out, is he innocent? They, they're going to kill him anyways. He was already a, a dead man. They weren't having a trial to determine his guilt. They just wanted to legally kill him and make themselves look good. And so really, they had no case against Jesus and so they begin to try and make things up. And so I think that the, the, the high priest is asking about Jesus' teaching because he wants to find, well, maybe we can, we can dig into something he said that, that we can convict him on. And then I think his, the high priest is asking about the disciples because I think a concern for them was if we kill Jesus, will his disciples continue his teaching after he's executed? I actually think, and, and again, this is speculation. I think he was probably trying to get, okay, tell us who your disciples are. What's their names? Because r- remember Lazarus? When, when Lazarus was raised from the dead and so many people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus, what did the high priest and the, the chief leaders try and do? We gotta kill Lazarus too. So I have no doubt that he was going, oh, tell us about your disciples so that once we kill you, we can maybe stomp them out as well. And Jesus' response is just amazing. Again, talk about being in control. He actually doesn't answer their questions. He he questions the legality of the trial. He says this, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. So, you gotta hear this is brilliant what Jesus is doing. Because legally, in Jewish trials, they were not supposed to talk to the person on trial until they talked to witnesses. That was just the Jewish system. So, if I was dragged into a Jewish court for some crime, they were not allowed to ask me first. They had to ask you know, Cameron and others who were like, hey, did you see him do this? Before they could question me. So notice, they've skipped that. They've just, no witnesses, they're asking Jesus specifically. So it's brilliant. He goes, why are you asking me? Ask some witnesses. Where are your witnesses? Ask them what I taught. I taught in public. I'm not hiding anything. Now, when, when Jesus says that he, he, he said nothing in secret, That doesn't mean that he never privately taught his disciples, but what he's saying is what he taught in public and what he taught in private, it was the same. There was no sinister motives. It's not as if Jesus taught uh, in in public, hey, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then to his disciples, he's like, actually, hate God. Like, he's saying there's no sinister motives. He said, what I taught in private, I taught in public. Ask the people that I was teaching And here's the response, Um, an officer um, standing near Jesus struck Jesus with his hand, so essentially slapped him, and says, is that how you answer the high priest? So can we just say, the fact that that man who struck the Son of God was not immediately killed shows you the grace and mercy of God. (laughs) I mean, you don't strike the Son of God in the face. The fact that that man didn't die instantly is unbelievable. But from his point of view, here's this insolent criminal. How dare he talk to the high priest like that? And so he, he strikes him. And again, Jesus, his, his answer is, is brilliant and it's so restrained and in control. He says, if what I said was wrong bear witness about the wrong. Again, he's saying, you guys are breaking the law. You have no witnesses. If what I'm saying is wrong, show me some witnesses. Bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said was right, then why do you strike me? So I love that Jesus is not phased by this at all. He's not panicked. He's in control, and what he's doing is he's just pointing out legally, I'm innocent until proven guilty, but we know that the chief priests and the leaders have already decided that Jesus is guilty. And it's like they're trying in their power to intimidate Jesus and it's just failing. Jesus is completely unnerved. He's the Messiah, he's the king, he is God. He's the one that gave them all breath and they're trying to intimidate him. And so we're told that Annas now sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then the scene shifts, right? And so part of me is like, no, 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 tell me what happened when he went to Caiaphas. And now we're back outside with Peter, and we're told that he was asked two more times. So he's standing by the fire, warming himself, and it says they, so collectively, a few people maybe, were like, you're, you're, you're also not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter denies it again, and he says, I am not, and then it's actually interesting, it says a, a relative of the guy who, who Peter cut his ear off in the garden, he says, wait, wait a second, didn't I see you in the garden? Like I just picture the scene, maybe a, you know, the, the fire kind of flared up in a moment and the guy caught Peter's face, wait a second, weren't you in the garden? And Peter denies it, what, whatever he said, no, I wasn't in the garden, I wasn't there, you got me mistaken for someone else. And then the rooster crows, and it's Jesus' prediction of Peter denying him is true. Now, we're, we're told in the other gospel accounts, it's interesting, they're all relatively the same, but we just get little, little differences in the details, but we're actually told that Peter calls down curses on himself, saying, I do not know the man. Actually, in Luke's account, in Luke 22, it says this, at, at, as soon as Peter denied Jesus the third time, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you, can you just imagine that? I don't, I don't know if, if Peter was outside and there was a doorway into the courtyard and but, but Luke says that as soon as Peter denied him the third time, Jesus turned and looked at him, and then it was like Peter remembered what Jesus had said. And he goes out and he, and he weeps bitterly. So what we have here is a colossal faceplant from Peter. I mean, in the midst of Jesus' trial, Peter denies him three times, claims he doesn't know him, curses himself calls down curses on himself, swears that he does not know Jesus. So it's amazing. If you do a case study of Peter, um, Peter was a very brash and, I believe, a very overconfident individual, and in spite of his self-confidence, uh, he failed Jesus in this moment. Now, I want to be clear. There's a difference between him and Judas in how they responded to to their sin. Like Judas betrayed Jesus, uh, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, totally uh, uh, stabbed him in the back. And we're, we're told in, in the Gospels that Judas then has regret afterwards and he, he gives the money back. But how does Judas respond to his regret over what he's done? It's just worldly despair and he kills himself. Peter responds. By We're told he he leaves and he's weeping bitterly, but Peter's response was different. Peter responded with confession and repentance, and we're going to see later on near the end of this gospel, Peter is restored as he has a a one-on-one talk with Jesus after he's raised from the dead, but I think... This is such a good warning to all who would claim self-confidence in their spirituality. And this is not the first example from Peter that that we see this kind of um, maybe even uh, pride in in his view of himself. Um, I'll give you um, another example. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is teaching his disciples. It says this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Like, so this is right after, If you remember the story where where Jesus is like, well, what are people saying about me? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? The son of God. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be killed. And I love that Peter's like, Jesus, come talk to me for a second. um, I just need to kind of correct your theology a little bit here, Jesus, Right, it'd be like if I played around a golf with Tiger Woods, and I golf like twice a year, and I'm like, "Hey, come here for a second. Um, got some pointers for your swing." Like I'm like, "Who does Peter think he is?" It's like Peter, uh, Jesus, come here. Let me just rebuke you for a second, and that's why Jesus says, "Get behind me, that you're not. You're not thinking clearly." But I don't know what was, maybe Peter was like, you know, I just had this great confession and now I just got to make sure Jesus, his view is right about what he came to do. There's this kind of maybe pride in Peter, or at least there's this confidence that I can, I can fix Jesus, his theology a little bit. Let me just rebuke him. Um, even in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, Jesus says to all the disciples, you will all fall away tonight. And Peter says this, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But notice what Peter says at the beginning, right? Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away. Yeah, Jesus, even if all these other morons fall away, I will never fall away. You go, man, overconfidence. Jesus, I'll die for you. I would never deny you. Very, very confident in himself. And then a servant girl asks, hey, are you one of the disciples? I am not. He denies it. So I think this is actually a huge warning to all of us that boasting in our abilities, or being spiritually overconfident can actually lead to failure. It's maybe an invitation to failure. Because you and I, we're all in danger of becoming spiritually overconfident, and whether you think or not, we all have a tendency to boast in ourselves a lot, Even in our spiritual lives, we go, man, I know the Bible really, really well. I know the Bible better than that guy over there. Or man, like during our prayer time, did you hear my prayer? It was so eloquent. Or, right, I'm obviously over exaggerating. But we do things like that, right? My interpretation of scripture has got to be the right one. Like so and so doesn't know what they're talking about. I've clearly or we even do it when we compare our walks with Jesus with other people. Did you hear about so and so's marriage problem? I am so glad that our marriage is so great and we would never do something like that. Like we do that. We just become so overconfident in our own walks with Jesus. Um, I've, I've wrestled with this, and, and if you've attended this church for a while, you'll know these examples, but just bear with me for some of you who are new. But um, God, in His grace, has had to humble me uh, several times because I uh, uh, have struggled with pride and becoming very overconfident in the gifts that God has given me. Um, a few years ago, maybe five years ago now, there, there was an Easter. And some of you know the story, the puking story. Um, but there was an Easter and our church was growing by God's grace and there was lots of people coming and it was really exciting. And I, I remember coming early on Easter Sunday and kind of preparing and going through my notes and just having this thought of like, man, Andrew, everyone is coming to hear you talk today. And then there was like this kind of uh, rumble in my tummy and I was like, oh, that's odd. And, uh, you know, long story short, I ended up sick in the bathroom, throwing up before the first service, and uh, then the thought became, how awesome is it going to be when people hear that you were puking before the service, and you still preached twice, they're going to be like, wow, what an amazing guy. And all of these thoughts of like overconfidence and pride of like, everyone is here to, to see you, Andrew. And I remember as, a, as like, just a safety, I gave my sermon notes um, to Richard Coop, actually. I was like, just in case, okay, can you be ready to maybe come up? And it was about halfway through the sermon in the first service where I just had to leave because I'm like, I'm going to be sick and richard got up and he preached my sermon and i went home and puked my guts out and i remember i've i've never heard the audible voice of god but it was as clear as it could be it, as i'm puking at, in my bathroom god impressed upon me he said andrew i don't even need you i mean i can the, the rocks can cry out if i want them to you aren't special and it was just kind of like, oh man, thank you, Lord. How, how overconfident and prideful and arrogant I was. But I don't learn my lesson. So a few years later, <laughs> we were in Costco in Grand Prairie and sitting down and there was a, a couple sitting next to us and we were eating lunch and we prayed before our meal and the couple just kind of started chit-chatting and You know, it's so good to see a family praying. Yep, it's great. We just are thankful for everything we have. And, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor in Fort St. John. And the wife went, oh, you're the pastor whose sermons are on the radio sometimes. And I went, I am the pastor whose sermons are on the radio. And just stupid thoughts, like, man, I wish I could go out in public without being noticed. And all these (laughs) just dumb thoughts, and here's, here's what's great. So my head is quite big and the man's eating. He goes, yeah, you've had a couple good sermons. I was like, oh, man. But again, totally God's grace where he goes, Andrew, you're not that important. I don't need you. Right? And you just face plant. Because my own overconfidence and pride was just getting in the way. And I, I think God humbled me graciously before an even greater catastrophic catastrophic faceplant would have happened. So then how do you and I guard against spiritual overconfidence and just arrogance in our spiritual walk and pride and how well we're doing and look at me and look at the things I've done and look at how God's gifted me. How do you how do you guard against that? Guard against a reliance on yourself so that when trouble or trial or testing comes you don't ultimately fail. And crash and, and burn. Because there's so many warnings in the Bible about this very thing, right? Proverbs 16:8. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty, right, arrogant spirit before a fall. First Corinthians 10:12. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Even in Revelation, there was a, uh, one of the churches that John writes to, they were so overconfident in their spirituality and so arrogant and how great they were. He says this, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So how do we guard against this? I, I, think, I think this is why John interposes the denial of Peter with the trial of Jesus, because think about it, Jesus is heading to his death. He's on the way to the cross for the sins that Peter is committing at that very moment. As he goes to his death, like he will die for those sins that Peter just committed, denying Jesus. One scholar said this, at the very point of our Lord going to death, the very reasons that he was doing that, to pay for in full the sins that are being done at that very hour by the one, Peter, who would be considered the best follower he had. Like Jesus stands up to his questioners and he denies nothing and Peter cowers before his questioners and he denies everything. I think Peter actually was thinking that he was protecting himself by denying Jesus, but in reality, it's Jesus who was protecting him. So I think one of the, the main ways that you and I combat overconfidence in our spiritual walk is to constantly meditate on the work of Jesus and our need of him minute by minute. Now, I don't mean, like, we don't swing the opposite. We do this in churches so often. We're like, okay, well, I don't wanna be overconfident and I don't wanna be prideful, so then we walk around going, I'm garbage, I'm nothing, woe is me, never compliment me. It's like, well, no, that's, that's an overcorrection. There's just kind of this settled confidence in who Jesus is, but I, I think that comes by us meditating on the gospel and our need of Jesus minute by minute by minute by minute to see all of the gifts that God gives us, all of your spiritual growth, all of your maturity, all of your understanding in your walk with Jesus, all of that is grace from God. Like no one can say, man, look at me. We all go, thank you, Lord, for your grace. I mean, the Bible talks, Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. What is our trust in? Our hope, it's in the Lord. It's not in our own abilities and in our own maturity. It's in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I mean, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 3 Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit. So so notice that like Paul, he's, he's saying, I'm a minister of the covenant, but it is God who has made us competent to do this. The reason that you can go and be a minister of the gospel is because God graciously gave you that. He goes, I'm not sufficient in myself. I can't do anything on my own. Even Philippians 4, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So actually, it's the gospel that removes any and all boasting, any overconfidence, and any pride when you remind yourself of your weakness and your need for Jesus. And we are called in Scripture to to boast about certain things. We're called to actually boast in our weaknesses. We're called to boast in the cross. We're told that in Ephesians 2, salvation is not a result of our own works so that no one can boast and let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So we boast in our inability to do anything. We go, I can't do anything. I'm so weak. I cannot do this on my own. And so we boast in the cross of Christ. We don't boast in our accomplishments, how good we are, the great gifts we have. No, we constantly boast in the gospel. And and so there's just ways that you do this that God graciously has taught, right? When we hear about someone um, uh, having marriage problems, we don't go, man, I'm so glad we're better than them. My, My wife and I often have said, man, we are one decision away from being exactly where they are. We need to pray, God, please continue to show us grace and would you be with that couple and would you help them, right? There's no, there's no room for boasting and, and being overconfident, right? Or when people say like, hey, you're gifted in this, I see this in you, it's like, sure, okay, thank you. But then it's like Paul who goes, man, I am only good at this because God has graciously gifted me and he can take it away in a moment if he wants to. And so here's the good news in all of this. Um, you and I we, we all will probably at some point um faceplant like Peter did. I'm sure we could share stories of of your lives where the same thing happened. And here's what where the encouragement is in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So it the moment that Peter is denying Jesus, I mean, Jesus is on his way to his death to pay for that sin. And so when you and I stumble and we mess up and we sin and we do things that Peter did perhaps or, or we are filled with overconfidence or pride or arrogance, when you and I respond in repentance, God is faithful. And we're going to see in a few weeks, and I don't want to spoil it because we'll get there, but Jesus completely restores Peter. And even in the midst of Peter's faithlessness, Jesus remained faithful. Jesus went to the cross to pay for Peter's sin, and and so too with each one of us. When I am overconfident and prideful and arrogant, God lovingly and graciously humbles me, and he leads me to repentance, and he restores me, and God does the same for you. And so my my prayer for all of us is that we would be so on guard against kind of a spiritual arrogance or a spiritual overconfidence, but that we would be, like these passages describe, so dependent on Jesus that we would boast in our weaknesses, that we would say, like, I'm not sufficient in myself to do anything. I need Jesus so badly. But then we would boast, not in ourselves, but we would boast in the cross and go, and look at our Savior. Man, he is so gracious. He is so patient with me that we would boast in the cross that saves us. So God, I just thank you for um, the example of Peter that we have in our Bibles, um, because we're all like that. Um, at different times and in different seasons of of life, we are so quick to become very self centered and very arrogant, prideful, overconfident in our own abilities. And God, I just love that you are so gracious and patient with us. That we we don't deserve your grace. And yet, God, you will will humble us because you love us. And anyone that stays on a, a path of pride and arrogance and overconfidence it just leads to death and so in your grace God you humble us so that we learn to be dependent on you and it's a dangerous prayer to pray but God I pray that you do that for all of us that you would humble us humble me God that we would not be so overconfident and proud of our own spiritual accomplishments and how gifted we are in X, Y, and Z or whatever it is, but God, that we would just be so dependent on you, that we are not sufficient in ourselves for anything, but we need you and that we would boast in our weaknesses and boast in the cross. So just do your work in us, Jesus. I, I pray too for people who maybe have face planted spiritually, so to speak, um, that their response would be like Peter's and not like Judas. That they wouldn't fall into just utter despair and hopelessness, but like Peter, they would weep bitterly for how they have failed and they would repent and confess and turn back to you and that they would experience your grace and your faithfulness to them. Because God, when when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And so would you just be faithful to us, God, we ask. So just do your work in us, Jesus. And I just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.